Indeed, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for um, the way you manifest your love to us and then the way you call us into a a way of being that is a response to your love for us, Um, that love that we pour out for each other in everything we do and say, um, even in the things that we think. And so, Lord, as we turn to this passage from 1 Corinthians 14, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to open our eyes to see what we can see and glean from the Corinthian situation that will apply to ours as well. Um, Lord, would you show us um, how your truth is um, for all time, for all churches in all places? Um, Would you encourage us today, even through these words written so long ago? And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I won't do a whole lot of um, summarizing, unfortunately. I know we've got a little bit of some um, newcomers. We're talking about, again, Corinth um, is this place uh, right at the isthmus between two larger land masses. And remember, there were two harbors, one coming in from one side, the other from the other side. And it meant that the church in Corinth reflected a lot of the society in Corinth, which was very extremely diverse, diverse ethnically, diverse spiritually, and as one commentator says, he's trying to, Paul is trying to uh, do surgery on the people of Corinth, essentially to take the Corinth out of the church (laughs) and leave the church intact, that some of their cultural considerations have overwhelmed their faith and and that they've lost sight of the gospel. So in the first part of the book, remember, he gives us that gorgeous um, reiteration of what the gospel is, that it's foolishness for those who are perishing but it's the wisdom of God um, that it seems strange and yet it's God's wisdom for us and so um, then he goes into some a lot of really specific things he goes into some specifics about um, specific instructions about certain things Um, and he spends a lot of time doing this and it seems like a lot of behavioral stuff do this don't do that but remember that the do this don't do that is um, essentially he's not trying to get them to behave correctly for the sake of behaving correctly. He's really trying to address the disbelief or misbelief that lies underneath their misbehavior. Um, So any thoughts or questions about that? Does that sound familiar to what we've been talking about? And just a little reminder um, for any... Anyone, if you were here last week, the um, handout from last week is going to be mostly what we're going to do this week. You can have mine. Is that a no, it, it turned up one. Oh, you know, if you make, yeah, could you make like four? Oh, do you have no, it's the same. It's the same as mine. Oh no, no, no! If you don't mind making, I'm just going to do more recap. You know what I'm saying, Danny. Um, so we're talking about the, um, we also mentioned, and you'll see on your handout, I talked about these Gnostic extremes. Remember that Gnosticism was this heresy that had taken root in the Corinthian church. And do you remember, anybody remember, what, what does Gnosticism uh, say? What is this heresy that kept cropping up in the church? It's about, false, it's about knowledge and the secret knowledge that you must attain to somehow. It was a pagan belief system that in infected the church and um, it infected the church and then what it, it, not just in Corinth but in other parts of the Mediterranean basis. Anybody else need another one from this week? Um, yeah. Okay. So as we're looking at that, um, remember that this Gnosticism ended up swinging to either extreme behaviorally. This belief 
in this secret knowledge and this secret spiritual mysticism that only some attain to, there was also an accompanying belief that the body was bad, that this stuff of the flesh, flesh and blood, eating, drinking, all of the things that we do in the body, that was categorically morally bad, spiritually bad. And so they would swing either to the extreme of asceticism, which meant if the body is bad, then I'm going to deny the body all of what it seems to need. I'm not, I'm not going to eat. I'm, not gonna, I'm going to abstain from sexual relations, even in marriage. And that was a problem that Paul addressed in chapter 7. Or it would swing in the opposite direction. So it's either nothing goes or anything goes. And that opposite direction we, I have down there is licentiousness. It was anything goes, and he has to tell them, no, really, you can't go see a prostitute, men. I mean, it goes that extreme. And then on the other side, no, really, it's okay to have sex in marriage. That's just fine. God, that's actually the proper placement for it. <laughs> God loves that. That's great. Um, so he's saying no to these Gnostic extremes. He's also, um, they have this, love for the spiritual freedom that they have and these spiritual gifts that they have. But he's telling them that their freedom in Christ must be curbed in the name of love, um, in the name of love for each other. And he talks about that with meat that's been sacrificed to idols. He talks about that in chapter 11 as we begin to get into this section, which some commentators this call one whole essay from chapter 11 all the way through to chapter 14. It's as though Paul is addressing all sorts of things that have to do with worship in particular. What happens when they get all together? Um, he addresses the issue of women wearing veils. Um, even though it was common for them to wear veils, it was the standard for women to cover up in polite society when they went out um, simply because of their beauty. You know, shielding others from their beauty um, was a sign of respectability and modesty. Um, and yet the women in the freedom that they have in Christ in worship are suddenly taking off their veils. And Paul's saying, no, ladies, keep it covered. Just, you know, you could, but no, don't. <laughs> no, really don't, because it'll be better for, um, for everyone and better for the men if you don't. And then he talks about the Lord's Supper and how they'd been abusing the Lord's Supper. And they'd been using their freedom as an excuse for all of these different misbehaviors, and he's saying, or disbehaviors that are really going to hurt other people in their midst, their brothers and sisters in Christ. So he tells them, no, really, um, don't. Love is going to be the um, definer of how we behave and how we act, and not our freedom. He talked in chapter 12 about a diversity of gifts, but how the diversity of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are meant to be all worked together um, for the body of Christ. They're meant to all serve the body of Christ. And so there's no way in which one gift is better than another gift. And we think, and we look at this in chapters 12, 13, and 14, it seems as though the Corinthians really valued speaking in tongues. There were all of these gifts that were given to them, these spiritual gifts, but Paul is emphasizing, no, there are diversity of gifts. You don't have to all speak in tongues. And in fact, don't all speak in tongues. How about this? Why don't you earnestly desire the higher gifts, including those gifts that specifically build up the church, the gifts of prophecy and teaching? And he talks about that at the end of chapter 12. And then he goes on to say again about love, that love is going to be the ethic that determines their actions, that love will never fade away. If they don't have love but they have these other spiritual gifts and they're so spiritual, then they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. 
right? Their, their heads are in the clouds. They're so puffed up in the sense of their own spiritual importance that they're not even aware of those around them. They're not even living out this love um, that is the love that we've received through Christ and the love that we pour out to those around us. And so he calls this still more excellent way the way of love in chapter 13. And chapter 14 begins, remember we talked about this last week, with Paul saying, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially this gift of prophecy. And he's again asserting that tongues are great. He's not saying don't speak in tongues to the Corinthians, but stop putting it as the pinnacle of spiritual experience and spiritual knowledge and spiritual spirituality and connection with God through the Holy Spirit. He's saying they're, they're fine and good, but they're not as good for the building up of the church, first of all, and then also for the conviction of unbelievers and the bringing of unbelievers to faith in Christ, as is prophecy and this other kind of spiritual gift that will provide knowledge and revelation from God directly. Um, it will be intelligible, and then people will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through it. Um, so he's going to argue this all the way throughout chapter 14. And we saw that last week in the first couple of verses. Um, and he's going to talk about two different things. He's going to talk in this whole chapter, first of all, about intelligibility. What needs to happen in church? Well, you need to be able to understand it. Everyone needs to be able to understand what's going on. What also needs to happen in church? Well, it needs to be done orderly, in an orderly way, so that there isn't confusion, again, for that clarity of communication of the gospel. So we're going to look at these two ideas, this intelligibility um, leading up through um, uh, chapter 14, verse 25, (laughs) and then this idea of order, verses 26 through 40. I'm going to take a breath. Do you have any questions? It's actually easier to breathe now than it was earlier in the pregnancy, believe it or not. Don't, I don't know why, but this summer I would pee. I don't know. It's the hormones, I think. But now she is, but yeah. Reading. Well, I mean, I did, it's just a small thing. As far as the speaking in, in tongues, yeah. Why was it so prominent? It's hard to say. Um, We know based on Acts chapter 2 that it was initially the first sign of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Remember in chapter 2 that um, the Holy Spirit rushed upon the apostles and that then, and there were um, literal flame, or something like a flame over their head that appeared and then their mouths were opened and they were speaking in languages that they had never learned. And all of these people that had gathered there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost were hearing them speak in their cradle language about um, the gospel and about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So maybe that's part of it. Yeah. I, did not, I did not interpret that this kind of speaking in tongues is a language. We talked about this last week and the differences between this. This kind of speaking in tongues is enough of a language that there's an interpretation that's possible. So intelligibility is possible, and Paul is pointing towards that, that if there isn't, he'll say in, um, in the verses following verse 26, if there isn't an interpretation, then the person speaking in tongues should be silent in the church. So somehow the person would know ahead of time there's going to be an interpretation. 
Isn't that amazing? More spiritual knowledge directly from God that that person would have. Um, And so there is, we talked about this a lot last week in terms of the spiritual gifts. And do the spiritual gifts, are they still at work today? Do we still see some of these signs of the Holy Spirit present in our midst? Through, We talked a lot about Advent House and some things that you might experience or see if you go over to Advent House. Um, Sometimes someone will speak in tongues. Sometimes someone will say something. Um, They'll have written something down on their legal pad when they were upstairs praying for you. And they come downstairs and what they say, they don't even know what it is. But it's an image or a phrase. I think I gave you an example last week of one time when that happened to me. And it's as though the Lord has this little wink at you and says, that's right for you, and you know it, it because it cuts you to the heart. You know, wow, that was a piece of something to encourage me that the Lord showed me just through the, what that person said. They don't even know how important it was, and so I don't usually let them know. But um, because sometimes someone with the gift of prophecy um, thinks they know <laughs> what's going to be important for you, and they really don't know. But that's that's actually a relief because then it's really between you and the Lord. Does that help? So any other thoughts about these um, spiritual gifts? We did talk about them last week. It is interesting, too. We did talk about the difference between, and I mentioned the difference between this being more like a prayer language, which is what people, if you hear someone speaking in tongues today, it's most likely a prayer language, that their, their spirit is speaking to the Lord somehow in an unintelligible way that builds them up spiritually, but that other people don't receive any benefit from. Um, And so that's part of why he's saying, keep it under wraps. And that's part of why when the churches, some of the the assemblies of God and Pentecostal churches almost require speaking in tongues as a Mm -hmm. sign of being a Christian, as a sign of being one who's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there's no place in scripture for that. Um, And this is is another example of Paul saying, yes, sure, great, speak in tongues, but that's not the mark of being a spiritual person, one who's baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's not a mark. Um, that's not the only sign, the only gift that someone can have. Um, we each are given specific gifts um, and me- that are meant to be used for the building up of the body. Does that help a little bit more? Okay. Any other questions you want to add to it? Anyone else? Okay. We're going to keep going. We read verses 1 through 5. Just for, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk about them, but I'm going to read them again. And then we'll, I'll keep reading and read through verse 12, and we'll stop and talk about it. So beginning at chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? 
And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Um, Paul now is launching, he's already said his argument, again, earnestly desire the higher gifts. He's talking about how prophecy builds up the church through um, encouragement and consolation um, and how tongues um, doesn't really do much for other people unless someone interprets. Um, And then he is going to give all of these examples to support his argument. As we've seen, he's such a good arguer. He has such good use of logic. Um, He's going to use a few different analogies to convince them of his argument here in verses 6 through 12. So again, he's arguing for clarity of communication in church, in worship. He's saying to them first in verse 6, what if when he came to see them next, when he came to visit them, um, he didn't, he didn't speak in anything but a tongue and they couldn't uh, they didn't know what he was saying it's a, it's of course it's a great example um if uh, what would it good what good would it do if he didn't speak to them intelligibly and clearly if he didn't help them know how to proceed give them wisdom about um what's going on in their church continue to teach to them what the gospel is if he didn't do that what benefit um would it give them He talks about um, these gifts that are intelligible, and he's going to list them. Um, He lists them like revelation, which means God revealing his will about something specific. It's different than the revelation of scripture, which we also call revelation. Um, The gift of revelation is God giving specific information about his will and his circumstance. Um, We do this when you you pray, Lord, what, what do you want me to do in this situation? We're asking for revelation and discernment from him. Um, Then also knowledge, um, which is, um, we've already said, is somehow different from wisdom. It's distinguished from wisdom in the New Testament. We're not exactly clear on what um, Paul intends when he distinguishes wisdom from knowledge, but knowledge is some kind of um, information or knowledge, again, from God. Um, prophecy is like preaching, but it's not the delivery of a carefully crafted sermon. It's rather uttering words that are inspired by God in the moment as they come upon the person. And then teaching, again, teaching about the things of God, teaching from Scripture, teaching from um, all of what it is that he's done for us that helps inform and give more information than people otherwise had, like what I'm doing right now. So um, he uses that on his, in verse 6, that, that example. What if on his next visit he didn't even speak to them clearly or intelligibly? What good would it do them? Then he uses another analogy of a musical instrument. Um, if a musical instrument doesn't play notes that string together that make any sense, might as well not play anything, right? I remember this as a child when my sister was practicing the violin, and you would hear her like screeching out the notes as she was learning to play and it was it was so painful we'd have to like 
have to, we lived in a small house. There was no way to get away. I, I, was, I was a bookworm, so I wanted to stay inside, but that got me outside to come play outside. <laughs> or I think about, too, I'm not, I do love music, and forgive me for even saying this, but some of the atonal contemporary music, just sometimes it's like nails on chalkboard. I'd rather not hear it if it doesn't make sense going together. That's what he's talking about. All of these random notes, if they don't mean anything, why, why listen to it? Um, so again, a musical instrument um, needs to sound, make sense, needs to be strung together. Um, then he uses, uh, and how interesting that he likens a human vessel to being a musical instrument. I love that. And then he gets into a more specific kind of musical instrument in verse 8. He's talking here specifically about a bugle in a battle situation. If the, in, in, in a battle situation, the point of having a bugle is that there's some kind of notes strung together on the bugle that everyone knows, and that means advance or retreat or something else. Wake up, <laughs> time to go to sleep. <laughs> if the bugle isn't making clear notes, that are strung together, then how will anybody know what to do? How will that whole mass of men know whether to advance or retreat? They won't. So he uses these three examples, and then um, he goes on to keep saying, if, if this speech in church is not intelligible, then, um, then essentially you're all going to be foreigners to each other. And the word for foreigner, it's kind of interesting, he uses is the word barbarian. And it's almost an onomatopoeia word, and it's barbar, and it comes and it comes from this sort of disdain for barbarian speech. It doesn't make any sense. This muttering of this language that no one can understand. Obviously, barbarians understood each other, but it's he's using this derogatory word for those beyond the pale of civilization. Um, and again, he's appealing to the sensibilities of these civilized Greeks here in Corinth. They become barbarians when they prize this unintelligible speaking over intelligible speaking. So the bottom line is here in verse 12. Um, essentially excel in building up this church. You're zealous, he says, in this zeal that they have in the Lord, this spiritual zeal that's effervescent in them. They're so eager and they're so excited about these spiritual gifts that they have that they're sort of showing off in their zeal. And he's saying, no, even as you're zealous, yet yeah, that's great that you're excited and you're zealous. Why don't, why don't you zeal, strive to, why don't you be zealous for the building up of the church? Do you like how I turned that into a verb? Why don't you excel in building up the church um, instead of building up yourselves? Again, not being puffed up. Uh, this was when we were children. I remember we would have these car rides in the caravan with four of us in the back seat, and we'd just get, you know, nipping at each other, biting and and sarcastic and tearing each other down is what my and my father would always he would just build up, don't tear down. He, you know, he wouldn't single us out for which ones were doing all the tearing down. But, it, you know, as a father, as, having a father as a preacher, you know, you can just, we would just let, roll our eyes and kind of be quiet for a while and then probably go back to it. But, um, again, there's this call to be outward focused instead of inward focused, other focused instead of self, self focused. Um, and one commentator says, Spiritual gifts are incompatible with spiritual selfishness. 
think about the person you know who seems the most spiritual to you on, for whatever reason. Is it about them or is it about other people? Is it really about God? Because there is some kind of self-benefit that we get from feeling spiritual or being spiritual. Um, even if it's just going to church, you know, we kind of give ourselves the stars for what we've done or what we haven't done. Um, and the Lord doesn't care. So any in this, with this hyper-spirituality and these spiritual gifts, again, um, I love how um, I've always been taught, again, from my parents, and I don't know where they got it, but that the Holy Spirit is never... Um, and actually, it's also in, in Scripture and throughout understanding and understanding of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, is shy. Um, the Holy Spirit is always pointing towards Jesus Christ, just like um, the the techie at the theater with the spotlight. He is behind, the Holy Spirit is behind the spotlight, pointing the spotlight on Jesus Christ, and not pointing the spotlight back on the person with the spiritual gift. Um, and so if you're ever in a church situation where it seems like it's become a three-ring circus and the center of the circus are the people with the most spiritual gifts, um, or it's individual-focused, or how amazing they must be, how spiritual they must be because God has given them this, these gifts, then you just know, click right there, something's a little off here. Someone's flesh is getting in the way of, of what the Holy Spirit wants to do because the Holy Spirit always wants to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul says, part of that exalting the Lord Jesus Christ involves the building up of the church, of the whole body, and not just of these individuals that are spiritual. Okay, any thoughts or questions about that before we go on in our reading? Okay, verses 13 through 19. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you can give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul here is finishing up this section about, again, arguing for intelligibility in church because it will build up other Christians. Um, and he's saying, um, essentially, that the um, the um, those who are... Those who are speaking in tongues are not also speaking with their mind being engaged. And that there's something about that um, that can be okay, but he's saying, actually, don't you want your mind to be engaged as well? And he's encouraging them and urging them to bring their mind into their praise and their worship and their prayer. Um, also, because, again, for other people out other than the person speaking in tongues, they won't know what the person is saying. How can they pray in agreement? Part of the point of coming together as the body of Christ is to pray in agreement. Every time we say amen at the end of a prayer signals agreement. Um, literally, it means, may it be so. So be it. Truly. Um, do you ever find yourself saying amen to something um, even when there isn't an official amen in our liturgy? I did that on Sunday when um, when I think Andrew read through um, the end of Corinthians or no the end of Romans eight and he, and it was that um, 
Neither angels, nor demons, nor life, nor death can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he said amen at 9 o'clock, and I just said it with him. Without, and then I was like, oh. (laughs) Or or sometimes we'll have a reading, a lesson, and there's an amen in the lesson. And it's so fun to see the whole congregation will say amen. Because we're... but we're agreeing with it. And so don't feel shy about saying amen out loud in a situation like that. You're, you're agreeing. You're saying, may it be so, even if it's not in our liturgy to say it at that point. Um, it's okay to say it. It says, I agree. Yes, may it be so. Um, Paul goes on also to say, you know, he's, not, he's, he's closing the door on any kind of accusation that he himself doesn't speak in tongues. Because he's saying in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Which sounds very bold. Um, sounds like, okay, okay, great, great, Paul. I'm so glad you speak in tongues more than everyone else. It's a very big blanket statement. But it's his way of saying, I have the same gifts, but I choose to exercise these other gifts that are going to build up others, including you, more than this gift that builds me up alone, that's a private gift. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay, and that makes sense to everyone? The next passage is going to be a little bit more confusing, so we'll spend more time on that. Verses 20 through 25. Brothers, do not be infants in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Okay, any thoughts or observations about this? It's very interesting. Paul's saying, yeah, these unbelievers will think you're out of your mind, which is not too... Dissimilar to the way we think about people speaking in tongues. Some of us, yeah, but sure. people speaking in tongues. When you're today. not, yeah, of course. That, it sounds, seems crazy. You know, it's exactly. just kind yeah. of out on the edge just of. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling a little uncomfortable with this right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. it might impair belief. Yes, mm-hmm. it'll if, get in the way. Oh, an unbeliever comes and that's what they hear. You've got to be truly for unbeliever. You have to be rational. You have to right. Tell them what what the, this religion is all about in a clear, concise way. Again, he's exactly talking about he's that's totally right, Mary. He's talking about intelligibility, isn't he? And he's gone from talking about intelligibility and the the benefit of this kind of intelligible spiritual speaking among those who are already believers. But then he's now going to talk about well, what if someone who doesn't believe in Jesus? and enters your assembly, which is interesting to think about that in the house church setting. They're not meeting in a public building. But say someone brings a friend to the meeting, um, and the person wouldn't be able to have communion, wouldn't be, but say they came in and this is what they saw was all of this chaos 
and these people speaking in languages he didn't know. Again, there, this emphasis on the importance of these tongues might have come from um, the first Pentecost and what happened there with the languages that were there. But this emphasis on these tongues that they don't have an interpretation for, it's actually the antithesis of what happened at Pentecost too. It's not, oh, we hear people speaking in our own language. How amazing. And they turn and believe in Jesus. It's, I don't know what the heck is going on here, and it seems kind of weird and freaky, right? And, but it seems as though part of their argument was that tongues were a sign of their spirituality. And if tongues were a sign of their spirituality, then they thought someone might enter and say, wow, God is really present. Some, something spiritual is going on here. And Paul said, correcting them and saying, no, that's really not the case. Um, it's prophecy that's going to cause people to say, wow, God is really present here. I feel convicted. I feel moved. Uh, I feel moved to repentance. Um, so again, this, yeah, Pat. Just one other thing. Yeah, please. Um, let's see. Uh, to be an unbeliever and not feel comfortable around with people speaking in tongues is one thing, but what about a believer Mm-hmm. Who is uncomfortable. And that's, that's right, Pat. He's talked about that in these first 19 verses and basically said it's okay to be uncomfortable with it because you're not able to engage. Mm-hmm. Again, essentially, it puts you in an outsider position. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and essentially, he's urging them, those with the gift of tongues, and saying, well, that's wonderful that you have the gift of speaking in tongues. He's encouraging them to use it only in private, in their private worship, private devotional life. Again, I think I told you last week with my parents, that's how I would see my parents speaking in tongues under their breath. I learned to, I learned to be able to hear. I heard, I, I'd be in a situation where they were praying for someone, and the person not actively praying out loud for the person was kind of like, you wouldn't even notice it if you didn't, hadn't been there a lot of times. But I'd been there a lot of times, and I would notice one of my parents who wasn't, they would often be on a prayer team together, a healing prayer team, and my father might be praying out loud for the person, mm-hmm. and my mother would be, you would hear this almost like quiet breath, her breath would be different, and it was because she was praying in tongues under her breath, mm-hmm. so the other person couldn't hear, mm-hmm. but it was just, and it ended up being a really beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. So, 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 yeah. So it's okay to feel uncomfortable with it. And you can ask someone and just say, I just don't really feel comfortable. If you go to Advent House and you say, I just don't really feel comfortable with people mm-hmm. praying in tongues with me. Or what, the or person with or the gift of tongues will... What are you talking... In, in other words, please explain to me what Yeah, that's, that's another way to do it. Yeah, okay. Just uh, say... Have said... Yeah. If you... It, because they said... Didn't you say last week that the people who prayed in tongues didn't necessarily know... Themselves. themselves. No. No. But there's an interpreter. But I I will say sometimes there's this intention, especially when it's intercession, when they're praying, not just praying thanksgiving to God or praying adoration to God, but because that, you could also have an intention in your head when you're praying. Um, And this is somewhat of what I've experienced, that there's um, praying a specific intercession. Say someone's... <clears throat> say I'm on a prayer team and I'm quietly praying for someone. Excuse me. And I'm praying something specific, a specific request for someone. Uh, and and again, I don't know that I have the full gift of tongues. I call it baby tongues because I don't know what it is. 
but but I get this sense of deep communion and fellowship with the Lord while I'm praying that thing. I could tell that person that, even if I wouldn't have an interpretation of the... Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And then it would be a blessing yeah. for them to hear it, True. right? True. Um, so here again, Paul's saying it's going to be a sign for unbelievers. He quotes Isaiah 28, and it's unclear. We're not totally sure why he's quoting Isaiah 28 in verse 21. He says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This He's quoting Isaiah 28. We think um, commentators are not all unified on this. It's not super clear. But he's basically saying it is a terrible thing to be at the mercy of ones who speak unintelligibly in a foreign language. And it's a situation in Isaiah 28 where Israel was at the hands, was at the mercy of these foreigners um, who had overrun their country. Again, they were going to be taken into exile. Um, and that was a form of judgment upon them. He's saying, again, the, um, and he'll go on to say this in verse 22, even though it seems like a contradiction. In this whole passage, he's saying, again, tongues aren't going to help unbelievers. That's the whole point of this passage. But verse 22 seems like he's saying the opposite. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Essentially, it seems like he's contradicting what he's about to say in verses 23 through 24. So a lot of commentators try to figure this out. What does this mean? Um, One commentator says, well, it's a negative sign, not a positive sign. Not a sign, oh, God's here, but it's a sign of judgment. Um, Just like the speaking in tongues of those foreign overlords over Israel in Isaiah 28 is a sign of judgment. Um, And he's saying this is not... This is not time for judgment. We're not here to bring judgment upon those unbelievers who come into our midst. We're actually here to extend mercy and grace to them. We want them to hear the good news of the gospel, um, not for them to think that they're being judged or that they're, um, you know, for that condemnation and that alienation experience. Does that make sense? So so I think that's the most clear commentary on that particular verse, that it's a negative sign, not a positive sign that makes you say, wow, God is really president, but a negative sign that makes you feel alienated. It's a sign, um, it's not not helpful for unbelievers, is essentially the bottom line. Um, Any other thoughts about that? Seems kind of confusing. Yeah, Trudy? A speaker one time talking about the gift of tongues, and he said that at Pentecost, it was a gift of hearing as, what, as much as a gift of speaking. Mm-hmm. That, that, that you had one speaker who was speaking in an unintelligible language, and you, might ha- and you had groups of people, all of whom came from different languages. They all heard the same thing. They were hearing the gospel. Yeah. So that it was a gift of hearing. Yeah. And maybe that needs to go along with... Yeah. The gift of hearing needs to be there as well as the gift of speech. I like that, Trudy. That's good. The gift of hearing that God gives. That it was a miracle yeah. of hearing as well as a yeah. miracle of speaking. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why, Paul, we're going to get into another couple of verses. If you have a tongue but you don't have the interpretation, right. don't say it. <laughs> because the miracle of hearing, the gift of hearing wouldn't be there then. Yeah. Right? That intelligibility. That been the, 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 one of the big things that happened at Pentecost. That's exactly right. That particular yeah. manifestation. Yeah, absolutely. And this is different. Yeah. And, 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 he's and, and in church, you would, have, you would think more than likely you're going to have most everybody 
speaking the same, understanding the same language. And we'll get to that when we get to the women being silent in church in a couple verses. What what was going on there? Because we do think that with it being with it being a merchant city, it's possible with all these people from all these different parts of the known world. They did. The men all spoke Greek, but maybe the women didn't all speak Greek fluently. And so we'll talk about that in in a little bit. But yes. Um, he goes on in verse 23, he talks about what if the whole church came together and they were speaking in tongues. This is kind of this daydream of the Corinthians and he's highlighting it and saying, yeah, but if someone came in from outside, they, wouldn't, they would think you were all crazy. Um, the, and they wouldn't be convicted. They wouldn't hear the gospel and turn and believe in Jesus. Um, so again, this daydream that they have is not going to help them. Um, just a little bottom line uh, going out from here, um, thinking about spiritual gifts, it's, I just would encourage you, even if you felt daunted with this discussion of spiritual gifts, I just want to encourage you by pointing out that all who are baptized and believe in Jesus have spiritual gifts. We Each and every one of us has um, more than one spiritual gift that God has given us. And so asking him to show us what those gifts are. Um, and there's a whole list of gifts and they're exciting and and they're all meant to be equally exciting and that was the point of chapter 12 um right but it might seem scary or might seem daunting or you might rather not know and yet it's a blessing to know because then you can um say to the lord why would you work through me would you take this gift and work through it for the glory for your glory and for the building up of your church then you can be uh, a more willing servant in some of the ways that the lord might call you to serve and to lead um, any thoughts about that? Yeah, Catherine. Well, years ago, um, the FN had a, um, a course, not a course, but it was a discovery of your gifts. Yeah. Um, but it's been many, many years. Yeah. I heard or maybe I missed something of a, it was a, kind of a discovery several nights or something. Yeah, interesting. Huh. Yeah. I'll have to look into that. Sounds It sounds fascinating. And there are some ways of doing it that are daunting for people because it seems um, extra spiritual, and it seems as though, and it's and it's maybe more Pentecostal than we are as a church, as a whole body. And so, trying to trying to do it graciously, where in, in a way that's um, mainstream enough that people feel like they can connect, I have a feeling that that's I one of the challenges. Yeah, yeah, and that's well. If you have any questions about that and don't know what your gifts are and want to know more about what your gifts are, talk to me one on one. We can. We can figure it out. Um, but it's usually, I think, gifts and calling are often um, the line up in the same way. So there are the things that people comment on that you do well. You know, it's not just the praise. Oh, you know, there's blanket praise. But when someone's really specific, you did this, blah, 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 so well because of blah, blah, blah. Um, and when your heart sings when you do it. You know, there's someone who, there's some people who really love to be in the kitchen. They don't want to be anywhere else. <laughs> and there are other people who really don't want to be in the kitchen. <laughs> and that's okay, too. <laughs> you know, the, where is the place that makes your heart sing where you sense the pleasure of the Lord, just like in Chariots of Fire? Do you remember that movie? And how um, Eric Liddell would say that he feels the Lord's pleasure when he runs. Um, and I might be misquoting it slightly, but there's this sense of the Lord's pleasure when when you're engaged in this activity or this kind of activity, that's a sign that that just might be one of your gifts spiritually. And then and then say, 
oh Lord, is this what am I? Ask him in prayer, journal about it, and he'll show you. Uh, I, he, he really will, because he delights at having us find these things and say, how can, I, how can I be more open to using this more often for your glory and serving others more often through this gift? He'll, he'll show you about that. Um, okay, so that's one thought. The other thing I think about this prophecy in, it, you know, we don't have this problem with tongues in our church, um, but sometimes I would encourage us, if, you're, if you hear a sermon or a teaching at the Advent or anywhere else, and you don't know what the heck it was about, you walk away thinking, well, I'm stumped. I'm baffled. I have no idea what that was about. It might be that there's some more information that you need that maybe it's a, a different level of teaching. You know, maybe it's a 201 class instead of a 101 class, and you need a 101 class. But, but I'd encourage you, you know, it really sometimes, and I feel this as a preacher and teacher, that... Um, Today, um, less we have less this problem of speaking in tongues, but more this problem of having a preacher, and I'm pointing to myself, who wants to appear smart or important. Um, sometimes it's more about the preacher or the teacher than it is about the content of the sermon and making the content accessible to people. And if that's the case, you just pray for the preacher. <laughs> and you ask the Lord and say, no, really, what was that about? <laughs> um, and so sometimes if there's an un- unintelligible sermon, um, that's, that's our fault. Um, it might feel like it's your fault, but don't be discouraged. It's actually the preacher's fault if it's not clear. Does that help? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what? My acting teachers would always say this is true of Shakespeare as well. If you hear someone pre- saying Shakespeare and they don't sound like they know what, it, it, you can't understand them, it's because they don't understand what they're saying. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, as a Shakespearean actress, my whole goal was to know exactly what I'm saying and to take those words and make them my own so that the intent would come across to the audience, even if they didn't know what methinks means or whatever, whatever Shakespearean word it was. Okay, I've left myself little time, but I'm going to read all of 26 through 40, and then we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk very quickly about some of the other stuff, and we're going to talk more in depth about these women. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone else interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in good order.
Okay, so do you see we've been talking about intelligibility in the church, and now he's, he's talking about this intelligibility and also the order. Um, and the bottom line of the order, he says, let them be silent three times. First of all, for those um, who have tongues, the gift of tongues, but no one to interpret. He says, well, be silent. For those who are prophesying, if one prophet is prophesying, and this is where we, we see that this is a very different church service than our church service, because he's saying if two or three are prophesying, and the first one's prophesying, and then another one gets a word from the Lord, and he wants to prophesy, that first one should be quiet. So the interrupting prophet gets to interrupt the first prophet and the first prophet should be silent um, and everything is weighed by the prophets and um, by those in the church um, in terms of discerning what, what's going on and in this bottom line of this is verse 33 for God is not a God of confusion but of peace and this is how we're to understand and interpret what's said here to women just think about, again, a lot of people want to take these verses as a uh, for-all-time injunction against any women speaking in church. And even thinking about the most conservative church you could possibly imagine on this topic, they still let women, women still talk. I mean, there's no, they don't, so, so how do we interpret this verse? What do we say about this verse? Again, it's within this context of order in worship. And no one, a lot of people have trouble understanding what does this mean. Um, But in light of this urging for order in worship, is it possible that this command is not a universal command for all Christian women at all times in all places, but it has to do with a certain kind of talking that was happening here at Corinth? And so there are different commentators with different ideas about what this kind of talking might be. But certainly there was some kind of disruptive talking that these women were doing. Um, Women did not have the same education as men. Um, It wasn't until, you know, in the Christian uh, mindset, and according to Jesus, women could learn from him. Think about Mary of Bethany in Luke chapter 10, sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's learning directly from Jesus. She's getting to learn the Torah. She's learning um, in a way that no Jewish woman was ever allowed to learn, to sit there at the feet of Jesus. Um, But so these women were not educated in anything in terms of scripture. They were Jewish. And then the Greek women also had no access to education. So they don't know at all what's going on. And yet now there's this new situation where they are allowed to learn. And they are given an opportunity to learn. And yet it seems as though they they were disrupting worship by their desire to learn, Maybe they were asking questions in the middle of the prophecy. What's going on here? Um, we need to know. Um, and it was derailing the whole thing. And it seemed like it was okay because it was a more informal setting than our church set. Um, we don't have anybody really talk in church except the people at the microphones in our church. Um, but this is a setting where everybody essentially had a microphone except he's saying, ladies, please don't use your microphone for this. Um, we see back when we go back to chapter 11 (laughs) going back to chapter 11 there is a sense Paul does say to women when they pray in public when they prophesy in public to cover their heads so um, remember that when we look at this this chapter 14 how can he say 
in um, chapter uh, chapter 11 um, that every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, and this is clearly in public worship, dishonors her head. He's talking about women who are here speaking in church. In the same book, he's talking about women who are definitely speaking in church and then saying women shouldn't speak in church. It's a different kind of speaking that he's talking about. The one is official praying and prophesying. This other speaking is disruptive speaking. Okay. The other One other commentator also thinks that it's possible, again, because these women might have accompanied their husbands to this town, this merchant town, and yet if they came from Syria and the lingua franca or the language that's being used, just like English is used all around the world for business, by people who don't speak it as a first language. Their Greek was the language that was used as um, the common language, even if everybody didn't speak that when they were a child growing up. So these women have a different cradle language than the language that's being spoken in worship. And they might not have had a lot of opportunity to practice their Greek speaking. Again, like the men, they weren't going out and doing a lot of business in the town square. Um, and so it's possible, too, that it's possible that they not only might not understand what's going on in terms of the Christian faith as they're learning their Bible and things like that, but it's also possible that they just didn't understand the common language as well as the men did. And so Paul is saying, no, really, don't interrupt worship, but ask them at home. So, again, one more example, current example of this that has really helped me with this passage. It actually happened here at the Advent. It's Anybody's been on vestry, we have all of our vestry meetings in the living room at church in about as many tables as this. There are about 30 people there, and we don't have any amplification. Um, there are no microphones are used, but I've been on the very corners of the room before, and sometimes I have to strain to hear what's being said from the podium. And this one time, I sat next to a person who definitely had a slight hearing problem, but not enough for a hearing aid. And the person was sitting next to me, and I'm straining to hear and understand what's going on. And this person keeps asking me, what did he say? What did he say? And, I, and, and not even whispering, what did he say? What did he say? And I'm thinking, shh, I'm not going to be able to, I'll tell you later. i got to find out what he's actually saying, and then I'll tell you later. And it was exactly this situation. Shh. I've got to find out what he's saying. Then I'll tell you later. But if you keep interrupting and distracting me from what he's saying, I won't know either. And then we're both out of luck. <laughs> but if you would just be quiet, I'll find out, and then I'll tell you later. Isn't that exactly what's going on here? Yeah. yeah. Um, so just to encourage you, again, you can talk in church. Don't worry. <laughs> You're allowed to talk in church. And even though we don't have um, a lot of people talking outside of the microphone. You can still talk in church. Um, and this is where this final line is summary in verses 36 through 40. They're not about this part about the women. This is about all of chapters 11 through 14. This is a summary for the whole, for the whole bit that we've been studying um, during these last several weeks. Um, Earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order in all of the churches of God. So with that in mind, let's pray and then I'll let you go. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, the gift of worshiping together and the gift of receiving gifts from you to build each other up. And we ask, Lord, that even as we um, seek to understand what are the gifts that you've given us, how would you desire for us to serve you? 
um, what are the desires of our hearts that you also have somehow empowered us to do? What are the things that other people say, wow, you do that so well, thank you for that. Um, Would you show us what those things are that we might um, do them more and experience um, more of your pleasure in doing them and that we might experience more joy on on our own part in doing them and that others might be built up for your glory's sake. So um, we ask this and we give you thanks again for this church 2,000 years ago and the way um, you spoke to them and you speak to us again today through your holy word. Um, Send us out now with your blessing as we go about the rest of our day and the rest of our weeks, even as you bring us back together again next Monday. In Jesus' name, amen.